0: So I'm Joe Novick, I'm Tassa's partner. I've been doing this for a while now, 26 years in law, but this is my second career. I'm actually 61 and I've been in business as Tessa told you before. Let me see if I can share some of my experiences with you. I'm here, I survived, and maybe I can help you with some things. So you have your business planned. It's solid. You have your office picked out, your furniture's picked out. Business is good. You made all the right moves. Now you got to keep making the right moves. Because business is good, you want to make it better. And so the first thing that pops into your head are employees. Maybe you started out with them, but usually you get things solidified first. And then you start onboarding your employees. And let me just tell you before I even get into the employer-employee relationship. You know, there are other options out there. You don't have to get an employee right away. They do have these staffing services that are a little more expensive than having an employee, but it saves you a lot of problems because they cover things that you wouldn't have to worry about too much normally. So it's a good way to start up and something to keep in the back of your mind. Startups do use staffing services initially. It's not a bad thing. So interestingly, the topic that that Tasso has given to me is working with others, which I find kind of ironic, but I'm gonna discuss this. And it's not just working with others in the workplace, because we're really working with most of our employees remotely. Basically the same rules apply And you have to be even more careful when you're dealing with employees and the employees are dealing with each other. When you're onboarding your employees and when you're talking during staff meetings, you have to remind them that there are protocols and there's behavior that's not acceptable. That wouldn't be acceptable if you were face to face. And that should be the touchstone for everything that they do. One of the things about the remote conferences with your staff and everything, you know, you have to respect their emotions about things. If they choose to not have their video on, you can't force them to put their video on. They may not be comfortable with having their boss inside their house. That's okay. Once you start invalidating emotions with your rationale, you're putting a wedge between you and somebody who's taking care of your business on a day-to-day basis so you have to be very aware of that and not invalidate emotions of anybody in your staff and by the way it's not such a bad rule to keep in general even when, you, when you're outside invalidating emotions is the number one way to curry resentment and resentment in a company can be very bad we're going to talk first about employee handbooks you know as i said you made all the right moves don't start skimping now If you're gonna have employees, you gotta have written policies, and it should be in the form of an employee handbook. Going onto Google, you're gonna get something, and that's something, it's that's a little helpful, but oftentimes it gets you into even more trouble than having nothing at all. And I'm gonna tell you right now, there is absolutely no general silver bullet handbook that you're gonna get from anybody as a one size fits all. Every company is different, every company has different problems, issues, setups, and they should all be addressed. In the handbook, and this is a customized handbook, the first thing you want to address is the working expectations for both the employer and the employee. And this should be written. It should be articulated in your handbook in plain English. If you are reading this thing and you need a lawyer to interpret it for you, throw the book out and start again. Everything should be in plain English so that everyone understands whether that's your employee, whether that's the administrative law judge, or whether it's the federal district court judge in the Southern District of New York that's going over while you're in the middle of of litigation. And I'm telling you right now, your employee handbook as an employer will be your best friend. It will be your best friend as an employee as well, because it explains everything and you cannot deviate from the written word if it's clear to everybody, only if it's ambiguous, only if it's unclear that it becomes a problem and you need a lawyer for it. So you have your working expectations, you have your policies of, for example, how to treat each other, whether it's remotely or in person. If you require in your business for everyone to be dressed a certain way, then you should make that clear. So at least the employee has an opportunity to say, no, well, I'm not wearing that. All right, so they found out this is not someplace they want to be. They know with the asset. It's not a surprise to them. And then, you know, people come in and they dress a certain way that's against your personal policy. And they're there for months. And then you say, you know what? I don't like this guy. And you call them in and you say, I don't like what you're wearing. And you're out. That's not fair. If you get it before a, a judge or administrative law judge or arbitrator, they're going to agree with the employee. Next thing you want to talk about, clearly is discipline like what will happen the employee has to be on notice if they come in late five times during a a certain working period they're going to get a warning after the first warning they're going to get terminated so that they can't go in when they're fired after missing 10 days that they didn't have notice of what the expectations were what their obligations were so it's got to be made very clear as to what the discipline is what it means got to be spelled out. It can't say, you know, you're going to be disciplined for cause. That's not enough. That doesn't mean anything. And then finally, your employee handbook has to discuss protections from claims such as harassment and for wrongful terminations. And that is just very clearly spelling out what they're required to do, what they're required not to do. And this way, it's not a guessing game. So as I said, the employee handbook becomes your best friend, especially if you're an employer, though because you're usually the one defending a termination. And one of the problems that comes up is someone whose first language is not English. It's another one. All right, they were fine. They spoke English during the whole time that they worked with you. You didn't need an interpreter. They understood, they did their job fine. Now, all of a sudden they're claiming they don't speak English well. And they come to you at the unemployment insurance board for for a hearing and they have an interpreter. You're like, what is this? I'm gonna tell you one thing. First of all, people whose second language is English, their command of that second language, that English as a second language, diminishes in proportion to the amount of stress that they're encountering. And court depositions, hearings are very stressful situations, and they forget everything. That's just the psychology of it. That's what happens. They're not trying to trick anybody. This is just a reality of how it works. Some are better than others, but if they're requesting an interpreter, that's the explanation. It's not because they're trying to trick you or they're, they're trying to curry sympathy from the tribunal. How do you resolve this? You had no clue as to whether or not they understood the employee handbook. Well, what you do is you insert a page in their first language that says that, I have been given an opportunity to have an interpreter interpret everything, translate everything in this handbook. I understand that and I waive that in their language and in English language. So you can present both of them to the tribunal, all right? And, And that's how you defend yourself against that. That's one thing. And it's a really, really important thing to have. There's your employment handbook in a nutshell. And as I said, there's no one size fits all. You have to come into us or you come into your lawyer and you explain exactly what it is, how your company is set up, how you communicate with each other and spell out everything from everything from benefits to discipline to behavior to everything that's got to be. It doesn't have to be a giant book and make sure that it's in plain English. Stay away from the legalese. It sounds really cool and stuff, but it's totally useless if no one understands it harassment policies. You have to have strict policies in your organization so that when you're onboarding a manager, or it doesn't matter, from from the highest to the lowest position, they all have to understand that you take this very seriously. You set the tone. The owner of the company sets the tone about how they treat harassment and discrimination in the workplace. You set the tone. And if you're the guy who sets the tone, or you're the, the woman who sets the tone, you say, we're very affectionate here, I mean, where does it go from there? You know that you don't understand that the need for this boundary or that where an affectionate workplace is just inappropriate on its face, all right? So your policies have to be very clear. And this is something, especially if you're in New York alone, that is very, very strict. And and there are a lot of little things that you have to be careful of. And you have to show proof that you actually explain these things of what's appropriate and what's not appropriate. A lot of it is common sense, you would think, but it's not. Okay. So everything has to be spelled out for them. And the the harassment policy should also be included in your employee handbook. And that brings us to harassment training. As I said, we, we train managers, but new employees should be trained as quickly as possible. So your harassment training, which is required by the way, now in New York, you have to have Harassment training every year, and the the person who's training, as we do, we give examples of what's appropriate, what's not appropriate, and make sure that everybody understands. For employers, the important thing is that you have to keep records of your training, who was there, who did it, how long it took, okay? because you're gonna get audited by the Department of Labor or the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, and you're gonna be required to pull those documents. And you should keep those documents for no less than five years after the termination of that employee. As I said, you might get audited. As a matter of fact, I recommend, and Tasso recommends six years of keeping them. Let's talk about contracts. Your employment contract should not be taken off Google. That's a sure way to end up in trouble, it's very cheap, but you, know, you made all these right moves, as I said before. Now you're going to blow it on a contract and you're going to go to Google and download and hope that's going to hold up in court. Bad move. Compensations, benefits, termination, everything should be spelled out in the contract. Same warning with the language of English is a second language. OK, just make sure they have it in there and you're not going to be violating any laws by saying, like, here's the contract. Would you be more comfortable having it in another language? Would you understand it better? That's not discriminatory at all. You can ask that. You're trying to accommodate them and make sure that they understand everything. Non-disclosure agreements, for you entrepreneurs out there that have more ideas and now you're gonna share them with other companies. You must have a solid non-disclosure agreement that's in compliance and under the protection of New York state law, which is different from other states. I mean, generally you see some common things but if you pull off a non disclosure agreement off of Google and you look at one of ours in here in New York State, you're going to see differences, important ones. Hopefully, that won't be too late. Non-compete for your employees. This is important, too. You have people that are working for you. And while you're paying them from nine to five, they are starting up with an outside partner, a company just like yours, using your models, your pricing models, so they're out there and they're starting their own company while you're paying them. Two things. Number one, it's illegal to do that. There's a doctrine called the faithless servant doctrine, which means that you have a duty of loyalty while you're working with your employer. If you do something on the outside, like the model that I just gave to you, they can grab and they can force you to disgorge every penny that they paid you from the moment that you started with this faithless servant behavior. So you risk losing everything. This non-compete agreement lays it out clearly what the employee can't do. It's where they can't say, I didn't know. And finally, independent contractor agreements. For those of you, it's kind of strange to have that here because we're assuming that you're getting employees too. But just remember in commercial law, actions speak louder than words, okay? Plain, simple, non-legal lease actions speak louder and worse. It doesn't matter if you say that you are an independent contractor or that person is an independent contractor and they signed and they agreed and they notarized it and acknowledged it. It doesn't matter. It's how they behave, how they're treated in the workplace. That's what determines whether you're an independent contractor or not. Don't screw it up. Just getting down to the final points, you know, as far as documenting everything. Business is taking off. Um, you're getting new clients, you're getting more business, you know, don't start getting lazy with your documentation. You must document everything, everything with respect to day-to-day activities, to how you're protecting your intellectual property, how it's being used, how it's being put out there in the public. These are all very important things. Document everything. I hope it's been helpful. And if you have any questions, I will be available.